Hey, everybody. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified. Now, we just wrapped up our third season, The Next Threat, and I wanted to say thank you to the thousands and thousands of people who listened in. We are truly grateful. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to all the episodes, I hope that you can go back and catch up. We're not going to have any spoilers in, in this episode. So for those of you who have been listening, you know that this season our team uncovered an international network of global extremists who are recruiting for a new holy war. Now, this is a network that goes from Russia to Spain to Sweden to the United States. We also talked about some of the dangerous ideas that white supremacists are latching onto. False conspiracies, like how white Christians around the world face the threat of extinction. These conspiracies have been cited in the manifestos of mass shooters like the one in El Paso, Texas, or Christ Church, and the Tree of Life Synagogue. And what's so scary is that these hateful ideas are becoming more and more mainstream. As this series has been playing out, there's one key question that we've heard frequently from our colleagues and from listeners— they're asking, what can they do in our own lives? Mark Greenblatt is, of course, our lead reporter in the series, and he joins us today. Mark, what's on your mind as you think about this big question? Well, I, I mean, I think, Natasha, it's a really interesting question. I mean, look, you know, I mean, you hear about these big networks that we're unpacking, and you you might sit back and, and say, that's, that's not my battle, you know? Uh, I mean, that, that's for the FBI to deal with. Or it's for the State Department to deal with. Or, you know, maybe it's for the, the military or, or the Pentagon to, to, to think about these things. What, what, what could I do? That, that really crystallized for me when, while we were reporting this podcast out, uh, I met a, a longtime law enforcement officer at the local level in Arizona named Chris Adamchik, who who talks about how you can't sit around and wait for the FBI to solve all the world's problems and prevent every possible attack, that we really have to take this on at the local level, in our churches, in our synagogues, in our schools, uh, by training our law enforcement officers better. Take a listen to what he says. My hope is that we can get in at the lower level, at the community level, and tell people, look, you need to, to break out of the echo chamber that you're in. If you find that you're, you know, your husband, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend is, is involved in these types of movements, it's time to intervene now and help them to understand that there's a much larger world out there. There's also really no age that's safe from hate. Um, and something that, to be very frank, scared me was to see that uh, the data that's out there, uh, the research shows that children as young as three years old can start to learn hate. And so how we are um, interacting with our kids uh, really matters. We want intervention at the earliest possible stages. So if you're an educator and you come across a student uh, who's writing latently racist things, we'd like to talk to that, that child. Um, and not necessarily from an enforcement standpoint. Look, this has to be handled at an educational standpoint, right? Because it's very possible that this young lady or this young man who's writing this stuff found this information on the internet, and there's no other way for them to counter this information. 
that's great. I, I mean, I, I agree that we we shouldn't wait for the, for like big governmental organizations to necessarily come in and help. These are conversations that need to be happening on the local level. But I, you know, bringing it right back to you know a friend or a coworker or a family member who starts to go down the rabbit hole. You know, what are some concrete things? that you can do to, to, to really stop the spread of hate and of misinformation? Well, you know, um, I've got to be honest with you, Natasha, that after a year of reporting on these issues, I still struggle with that question. What do I do uh, to battle this? What do I tell my own family? And, and I, I didn't have all the answers. So I decided to reach out for help to the group that describes itself as the world's oldest organization that is fighting hate in all of its forms, the Anti-Defamation League. And it turns out that they just put out a brand new book called It Could Happen Here. And it's written by Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, No relation to me. Uh, We have the same last name, but um, no relation. And... um, he breaks it down, first of all, into into different people that you might encounter and, and gives you some tools. So one of the areas that I thought was interesting was, you know, what if you sort of encounter somebody at the water cooler at the office, you know, or, or on a Zoom meeting that, that, that we're all on so often these days? And what if they say something, you know, that seems to be one of these conspiracy theories almost? And I, I love this tip. It's that if, if you sort of don't want to create an uncomfortable moment with a colleague or a friend, uh, you know, that might ruin a relationship, uh, but you want to also not sit there silently and actually you want to stand up and say, hey, that's, that's, there's something about what you're saying that's, that's wrong. You don't actually have to take them on like head on. You can, you can go in a little softer by doing something like asking a question, something as simple as, where did you get the evidence? Where did you hear about it? What, what are your sources on who these people are that are trying to control the world? And, and, the, and the beauty of it is you, it's, it's a softer way to challenge them, but you've also depersonalized it because you've immediately changed the tenor of the conversation to now just talking about evidence and talking about facts. Yeah, I, I, li- I like that idea too. I mean, I, I, I believe that it takes a lot of patience <laughs> to take that route. Um, I mean, you know, I have, Mark, I've struggled with this, this topic myself. Um, you know, as we were reporting the series, I actually, I had an encounter with a very, very dear friend of mine. She started talking about, I went over to her house and we were chatting and, and she started talking about, you know, some sort of new world order conspiracy conspiracy theories, um, you know, like that this elite group is running the world. And she even likened vaccine mandates to the Holocaust. Um, this is someone that I love very much. Um, and she had never, ever expressed ideas like this to me before. And frankly, I don't think that she was even aware of some of the roots of these ideas or, or the dark path that it could lead her on. Um, I was so taken aback at that moment. Um, I, I really, I just didn't know what to say to her. And um, eventually I just got up and left. 
Um, I, I know that that's not the, the best way to, to deal with it. But at that particular moment, I just wasn't armed with the tools in order to confront her. Um, so asking, asking questions, where, where do you get your, your information? Um, what, what are other ones? What are other tips that uh, Jonathan Greenblatt offers? You know, a lot of people who are out there are parents and they're struggling with the idea of what do I say to my kids when there's a mass shooting, you know, or some other anti-Semitic incident or some other racist incident that's happening out there. And I really like this, that, that we're tempted oftentimes to avoid difficult conversations. And what this book suggests is that you plan for the conversation, and it can be age-appropriate conversation with your kids. If your child is a teenager, they might be able to sit down and have a very detailed but guided conversation. Uh, you can go onto the ADL's website, and there are these things called table talks where the ADL will help give you prompting questions so you can plan a conversation with your you know, teenage child uh, that will help engage uh, with them about some of these more difficult topics. Um, and if we in our own in our own homes can do something even for a young child, three, four years old, five years old, to uh, do art projects, music projects that introduce beautiful things from other cultures around the world that are not their culture, it teaches tolerance and uh, dignity and connecting with other different kinds of people from the earliest ages. And, and that really spoke to me, that the, to be intentional uh, to speak with your children, no matter how young they are, about, about the importance of uh, connecting with people who are different. Uh, th- there are things that we can do in, 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 in our own lives. You know, Mark, in, in talking about families and, and how you have these really difficult conversations, um, you know, in our reporting, we met one family whose relationship was tested by extremism. In 2007, um, a woman named Lauren Manning was 17 years old when she was courted by white supremacists. After my dad passed away, I was 16. So for about a year or two, I was on uh, these metal chat forums. Um, So I got a message one day from this random profile saying, I was wondering if you are National Socialist or just listen to National Socialist Black Metal. The band page that I was on, which it was for this band called Nocturnal Mortem. Yes, it is a racist black metal band. However, the distortion on the mics are always pretty, uh, pretty high. <laughs> so it's very hard to make out the lyrics. And for me, being a bass player myself, that's actually what I was listening for. So I didn't want to sound stupid. I responded back saying, dude, I just listened to the music. And we started chatting from there. And uh, the first conspiracy I heard was about the alleged Jewish control over the rest of society. And for me, like, I had never met any Jewish folks personally when I was younger. I come from a pretty small white town. So I'm like, okay, well, I have, like, nothing to challenge this with. What was going through your life at that time that made joining, you know, this guy's movement and that made his rhetoric appealing to you? So I think it was less about uh, the rhetoric... um, like as far as other races go and it was more the message of like be somebody that's what was appealing to me because 
I mean, like, meanwhile, while I was at school, I was always that kid in the back of the class who would do, like, everything not to be seen. And then outside of school, like, I never failed to find trouble of some kind. And so you're saying that that movement made you feel like you were somebody. Yes, very much so. It's like this badge of honor that you earn, or that's your perception at the time. Like, I always knew that uh, this space or movement, whatever, was uh, very much male-dominated. And I also knew that I'd be one of the younger members there. So I think in the back of my head, like, I probably wouldn't have admitted it to myself at the time, but I was looking for, like, a second father figure. Like, I still needed that kind of baseline. It's just that was obviously not a good place to find it. Lauren's journey into a hate group began not long after her father died of cancer. Her mother, Jeanette, now single, faced another challenge, helping her daughter. We asked Lauren and Jeanette to talk with each other about how white supremacy nearly ripped their family apart and how they got through it. They joined us from their home in Whitby, Ontario. All right, so when did you realize something was off about the way I was acting? That was hard to figure out where it started um, because I assumed all of your anger was from grief from dad passing away. So I guess it really wasn't until you brought your friend Donnie home for dinner till we picked him up at the station and I saw the tattoo on his neck and I saw the hair and the, the boots, his whole outfit, his whole demeanor. And then I realized that this is one of your new friends and you had a very similar sort of anger in your tone when the two of you were talking. Um, I didn't realize at first that that was your recruiter. I just thought it was a friend, an odd friend. So was it the friendship at first that that drew you to him? It was the friendship at first. Um, I liked him as a buddy um, who I could just chat with. I also found I didn't need to have much of a filter around him, which (laughs) I did like that at the time. It was only as uh, the conversations got further and further along, I'm like, okay, who is this guy and like, what exactly is he really into? And I can seriously say that that was like, just curiosity on my part. Like I wanted to find out more. Did he bring more hate, more anger out in you than you already had? Uh, You know what? Hate, passion, anger, whatever you want to call it was bubbling up. And um, I often kind of describe it this way for um, us outcast kids. Like, I have no problem admitting that I was one. Oftentimes, we're drawn to stuff that's rather taboo. I felt like I had lost you. I'd lost you emotionally because there was no no good contact between us. Um, I had lost you emotionally. Physically, obviously, when you moved out, you were physically out of my life. So it was hard because we lost dad and then a year later, you were gone. So my lowest point was when, you know, when I said family or your friends and you chose your friends and you left just a few days past your 18th birthday, probably a week or two past your 18th birthday. And it just kind of, we were having an argument. I don't, I don't know what it was about. And it was just another argument on top of another argument. And that was when I blew and you were an adult. So I really had no control over you at that point. So you tell me, was, was leaving a hard decision for you to make? You know what, I think actually I was running on a lot of anger and frankly autopilot at the time. I already had it in my head that like these were my people, as in the group. However, my thing was like, they they ended up being 
like a really toxic family, if you want to think of it that way. Like, as much as I missed uh, some of the family structure and stuff, because we did still have some of that, I also enjoyed having no rules. So it was kind of give and take. Where did you sleep? Where did you go? So at first, it was the basement of an internet cafe. And at times, I did uh, share rent on a place with somebody else. So you um, you came home briefly, about six weeks after you moved out, you came home. And do you remember why I was so shocked when I saw you get off the train? Yeah, because I had uh, the underside of my head shaved and I also got 1488 tattooed across the side of my neck. And what was the 1488? What did that mean? Yeah, so the 14 signifies the 14 words coined by David Lane, ironically, when he was in jail. We must secure the existence of our race in a future for white children. The 88 um, translates to H.H. Heil Hitler. Every time I see something now where extremism is involved and there's people with flags and shouting and yelling and and trying to get their points across, um, there's a few things that come to mind. One is that, that I no longer judge them like I would have years ago and saying, you know, that's a bad person. Look what they're involved in. It's terrible. Uh, now I look at them and realize that, that chances are that that person is in that group looking for something. They need identity or love or a sense of brotherhood. There's something they're missing in their lives to belong to a group like this where they feel they have to be angry and hate someone else in order to feel better about themselves. Was there a point when you started to realize that you wanted to come home or did you come home because you ran out of money and you had no other options? So I think it was a bunch of things. Um, One of them actually being the sense of uh, stability, because let's face it, the roommate that I had at the time wasn't the most stable of creatures you could have ever met. You remember him quite plainly. (laughs) Creature is a good word for him. Yes. (laughs) Okay. That's fair. (laughs) Well, I can remember we we had to sit down together for a couple of hours and hammer out house rules. And so one of my major ones was you had to get a job or you had to go back to school. You had to be doing something with your life. Um, and the other rules, I think, were just ones about being decent, being kind to your brother and not mouthing off. And we didn't want to hear any of your hate speech. Yeah, so that said, um, do you regret us at the time not talking about how deep I was into the movement? Yes. Yes, I do. I wish I had asked you a lot earlier. Um, when I look back on it now, I feel more like like my father, you know, where I'm just pushing out what I don't want to see and pretending everything is perfect and great. Um, and I wish I had asked you sooner because I, then you wouldn't have had to go through all of the disengagement and de-radicalization on your own. So um, what would your final message be to other families going through what we went through? I would say educate yourself, talk to your child, um, talk to them and ask questions. Don't judge them. Don't give them boundaries that, that are unrealistic and listen. Most of all is just listen. And as you know, as we always say, keep the door open. Don't ever shut the door on your child and and tell them they can't come back. I think our relationship now is what I'd always hoped it would be, where we can speak openly, 
with each other about anything. Um, there's no hidden meaning to anything. You're not trying to find a hidden meaning to what I say and vice versa. And you've, you know, you've grown up and you've grown into somebody that I can be proud of. So for me, it's awesome. Our thanks to Lauren and Jeanette Manning. They document their story in the book, Walking Away from Hate, Our Journey Through Extremism. Now, a few years after leaving the white supremacy movement, Lauren found her calling. She's now helping people leave the far right, working with a nonprofit called Life After Hate. We'll keep all of you posted as things develop as a result of this series and our reporting. And if you have a story to tell us, record a short voicemail and send it to us at verified at scripts.com. That's verified at S-C-R-I-P-P-S dot com. There's so much more for you to discover about this story and what's coming up. You can find us on Twitter at Verpod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Verified Pod. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people discover Verified. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified. Thanks for listening. <laughs>